don't know how you guys did on that last part. I didn't do all that well. I sort of get to a point where everything just falls apart. You, know? and it's, um, you didn't hear it. Uh, you would have laughed. laughed. I laughed on the inside. If you've got your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of Romans. We'll continue our study through Romans. So commonly known as Paul's Gospel to the Romans. We have a chapter 3. This is where we're going to take our text. Chapter 3, and we'll start with verse 1. What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, dear Lord, that we have a sure word of prophecy, dear Father, that we have your word given to us, dear Lord, a word that is sure, a word that is perfect, a word that is unchanged and also settled in heaven. Father, I pray and I ask you, dear Lord, that you'll help us during these times and these days, dear Lord, days, dear Father, where the word of God is so terribly obscured that we would believe the wonderful truth of it. We ask you, dear Lord, that you'll bless this time with us. In Jesus' glorious name. Amen. As we're going through the book of Romans, when we spoke about it last time, we spoke about what advantage then hath the Jew? We, we understood that as we went through that, it's referring to the word of God, the oracles of God. Just by way of introduction, I want to read a quote to you from Donald Gray Barnhouse. He's, um, I enjoy reading. Um, his, he's got a commentary on the book of Romans. It goes for about five volumes. It's really huge, considering how small the book of Romans is, and his commentary is fairly large. I don't agree with everything that he says, but he is really profound in a number of things. And, and I just want to read this quote to you. He says this. Let me speak a word concerning the quality of this book, the Bible. It begins, as we read it, by being a book with cover and paper pages, overprinted with ink. Little by little, we forget the work of the printer and are brought into the presence of God himself, the author of the book. We are brought face to face with him and he speaks to us therein. The light of his presence in the word shines into our conscience, illuminating its dark corners, destroying its position as our defender and turning it into its proper role as a witness against us. Our heart is then opened to the truth and becomes receptive to his grace. Personally, I can testify that my Bible has long ceased being a book to me and has become the Lord God Almighty, speaking to my soul. From one end of the Bible to the other, there are verses that now stand before me as bushes which burn, but which are not consumed, where once I put my shoes from off my feet and stood on holy ground. I can read these verses today and remember how the Lord spoke to me there in, time, in a time of need. How he drew me away from myself to follow him. How he weaned me from earthly things to feed me with the living bread of Christ. How he cleansed me from sin. How he maintained me in Christ in a time of difficulty. 
and how he gave me the, the power to walk before him in a way that was well-pleasing to him. And the presence of all those verses which remind me of past blessings has built in me an attitude toward the book that expects the Lord to light fires in verses today and to make them stand out for my ever-recurring needs. I guess that's a, that's a portion that I feel that I can so much relate to. It's just, it is the most incredible gift other than our salvation that we've been given. It's the wonderful blessing that we have of being able to have a foundation, a sure foundation, something that we can stand on that is 100% absolute and true. And it's important because, you know, I find myself I'm not absolute and true. You know, I have often things going on in my mind and thoughts and opinions that are, that are wrong. We can, we can look at the society today, we can listen to the debates of our politicians and one has one view and another one has another view and really never the twain shall meet, you know. And you're the same. You're the same. How many times we have things going on within our own lives and things that we, decisions that we have to make, decisions that we make, believe it or not, based on faith. We make these decisions based on the faith of what we believe and what we think is true, is true. This portion of scripture that we're reading at the moment, Paul first acknowledges and remembers that the advantage that the Jew had is that they had the oracles of God. But then he asks a question. Paul does this a lot. You'll find this with Paul's writings. It's such a blessing. Do you know that every heresy, I would say almost every heresy, is already answered in scripture? It's answered and it's questioned. Paul asks questions based on what he is already teaching. So these are natural questions that he will bring out to confirm within the minds of the people, this is what you're thinking based on what I'm saying, and this is the answer to that question. He already presumes their question. So have a look at that. He says, What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them... Were the oracles were committed, the oracles of God? First question. Second question that comes from it. What if some did not believe? Did not believe what? Did not believe the oracles of God? Did not believe the word of God? What if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. There's three points we're going to be having a look at. The first one is that our beliefs do not alter reality. Whatever we believe within our minds, it does not change reality. The second point is that God's faithfulness is not altered by our unbelief. And the third point is basically repentance from unbelief. And that's something that we can see in this text. When Paul's asking this question what if some did not believe? Believe it or not, he's actually referring to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that was already presented within the oracles of God in the Old Testament. Have a look down a little bit further in your text. Have a look at verse 21. So we're in the same chapter. Just go down to verse 21. He says, By now the righteous, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. 
Notice he says, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The New Testament was only still being penned at this time. And he's dealing with and speaking to the Jewish believers that are there. Remember that in the book of Acts, in Acts 17, he refers to the Bereans as being more noble than those of Thessalonica. That they would receive the word with all readiness of mind, but would search the scriptures to see that those things were true. Well, what were they comparing Paul's teaching with? They were comparing his teaching with that in the Old Testament. So that which was in the Old Testament, they're listening to Paul's teaching in the New Testament. They're comparing the two and making sure that those things are true. That's being noble. That's what you need to be doing. You need to be doing that all the time. Whether you're listening to sermons on the internet, whether you're listening to the preaching from a pulpit, you need to be noble as the Bereans are. You need to search the scriptures to see that those things are true. In other words, the scriptures, the very word of God, have to be your final authority. Your final authority. It was to the Bereans. And Paul's holding the Jews accountable here to know and to believe and understand that the gospel is also presented in the Old Testament. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4. Considering what Hebrews is about, the book of Hebrews, we have Jewish believers that have come to believe in the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, born again by the blood of Christ. But now they're returning back. They're now going back to the law. They're trying to maintain their salvation, in other words, by living according to the law. Okay, So they started first by faith, and then they've returned now back to the law. And the book of Hebrews is dealing with this. And it speaks about the promise of God. Have a look at um, Hebrews chapter 4. We'll just read from verse 1. Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest... Any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest from the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time as it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. But if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. The gospel, according to the scriptures, was clearly presented in the Old Testament, foreshadowing the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now they have the very Christ in front of them. The very Lord Jesus that he, through the signs and the wonders and everything that he did, testifies to all people of the truth of the Lord. Of the truth of the word of God. Now the question that Paul is asking here is so. What if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? In other words. Shall the unbelief of the individual. 
somehow change or alter or modify the faithfulness of God with respect to Jesus Christ as the Messiah? And the answer clearly is absolutely no. So that first point that we think about, that first point that what we believe cannot change ultimate reality is true. It can't change anything, can it? I mean, I remember, I remember watching a YouTube video of a, it was a young lady that was on there and she was answering her, uh, her Christian friend through the video. And she basically said, she said this, she said, your arguments about hell has no effect on me because I'm not a Christian and I don't believe in hell anyway. It's as if hell now ceases to exist in reality simply because she refuses to believe in its reality. Do you see what I mean? And we're seeing this all the time. I mean, how many, of, how many debates have we read and seen between atheists and Christians and, and they're sitting there talking about evolution and Christians are speaking about creation? Do you know the reality isn't modified by either of their beliefs by faith? Either it's special creation or we'd evolved. But it has nothing to do with what either of those two believe. And believe it or not, do you know that atheism in the United States is a tax-deductible religious system? Amazing, isn't it? There was an article that actually came through recently that, um, that uh, there's atheists that are actually fighting to get this tax deduction removed. They say, well, we're not a religion. And the government says, well, yeah, you are, because it's a belief that you have that brings comfort to those that actually believe in what you're teaching. As an organisation, you're therefore entitled to a tax deduction on your house and on your interest and this and that and the other. Isn't it amazing? And that's, that's, that's true. I mean, secular humanism is a religion. They actually, when secular humanism first came out, they actually made sure that they understood that it was a religion of secular humanism. And there's plenty of religions that don't believe in God. Buddhism's another one. Right? So it it's doesn't believe in God. So does it change their belief system? Christians argue for differing doctrines that they choose to believe, and generally, there's generally three types of Christians. There's those that believe when they have the Bible, they have the final authority for all matters of faith and practice. They believe and they read the Bible literally, historically, grammatically, and they take out from the Bible what it's there to teach. Okay? That's one category. The second category is a category of Christians that believe that they are actually in the first category, but they actually use their own preconceived ideas first and they read the Bible and retranslate the Bible based on their preconceived ideas. Okay. The third point, the third part of Christians are those that actually believe more in the majority opinion of people. Majority opinion of the people that they listen to and teach and whoever says more this is true, then they say this is true, then we'll believe that one. Okay. So there's three different types. And there's varying degrees within that. The point is though, does their belief actually change what's real? Does what they believe actually change the reality of what the Bible's teaching? Or, if the Bible's true, then they have to be false regardless of what it is that they believe. So shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? And we can ask that. We can ask that of that girl. Shall her unbelief make the faith of God without effect? That's the question we're asking here. Arguably the hottest topic in the world today surrounds preferential sexual behaviour. It's, it's a topic that we're going to be not allowed to preach on soon. 
We've already got people in uh, overseas that are actually going to jail speaking about this issue. It's being sanctified by government as a legitimate and healthy and natural alternative. God has made clear that it is an alteration of the very purpose for which he created man and woman. What was the purpose? To replenish the earth. To replenish the earth. The end of this particular idea will see man extinct. And you won't have people to have filled in the earth. The Lord has made clear that the social acceptance of and the sanctifying of this type of behaviour is the visible outcome of a godless society filled with pride, idleness and idolatry. And you can read about that in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16. Perverted modes of sexual endeavours is the symptom of the illness and not the illness itself. This is why arguing against same-sex marriage and everything like that is somewhat pointless. Because you understand that it's the outcome of a depraved society. It's not the cause of it. Okay? And it's difficult for a lot of you to understand, I'm sure, because there's so many Christians that are fighting to have and make sure that oh, we don't want to go there, we don't want to go there. We don't want to go there, we don't want to have this legalised. But you know what? That's like stopping that is like putting a band aid on a hemorrhage. You know, you have to get to the source. You know, Paul did this in the New Testament. You know, the, the apostles did that. What did they do? They didn't fight social justice movements. They had to change the heart of a generation of people. They had to change their lives from the inside. They had to show them the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ that they might be saved. And then their heart aligns with the truth of the word of God. And it's a wonderful blessing. We see, we see evidence of that everywhere. The ultimate point is here. That you can believe whatever you want to believe, but nothing you believe will change reality. And everything you believe has a consequence that you're not in control of. What is your foundation? Is it sure? Is it true? Does your faith believe in a sure foundation? What you believe, is it in a sure foundation? The second point is God's faithfulness is not altered by our unbelief. In verse 4, he says, God forbid, let God be true, but every man a liar. Let God be true, but every man a liar. His faithfulness doesn't depend on ours. Okay? He's given us covenants within the Old Testament. You see his promise to Noah to no longer destroy the earth with a flood. Did it depend on Noah's behaviour? Did it depend on his family's behaviour? It didn't depend on their behaviour at all. He set his bow in the clouds. He set his bow in the, in, in the clouds as a sign of the, to the token sign of his promise to us, to each one of us, that he will no longer destroy the earth with a flood. Is his promise being kept? Well, it's a real difficult one, you know, because, you see, if the flood wasn't global, then no, his promise hasn't been kept because we've had an abundance of local floods. We have local floods all the time. Every year we have local floods. Therefore, just based on that, his promise must have, his, the flood itself must have been global and his promise sure. And now we have a bow that only ever appears when it rains. It's a rain, rain bow. The point is that his faithfulness and his promise that he made is not dependent on us. 
And it's exactly the same as what he said also to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15, please. The Abrahamic covenant. It was God's promise to Abraham that not only will he multiply his seed, not only will he multiply the number of people that are from Abraham's loins, but he will promise the land. Genesis chapter 15. It's an interesting study, this in itself. If you're there, find yourself at verse 7. Genesis chapter 15, verse 7. We'll read from there. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of her of the Chaldees, to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against another. But the birds divided he not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abraham, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a, in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and shall inflict them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward they shall come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Was there any conditions given in that agreement that Abraham had to abide in? Was there anything that Abram had to agree to, to keep his end of the bargain? What was Abram doing? He was asleep. He was asleep. What did he do with those pieces? Those pieces that the Lord had told him, he cut the larger animals in half and he arranged them in a way. It's a tradition that we understand today, even from the ancient times. It was a way that they would make a covenant where the two of them would walk between the pieces, reciting the terms of the agreement Okay, as they walk through. It's even found in Homer's Iliad as a picture of what they did in ancient Greece, how they would walk between those pieces to confirm their covenant, to confirm the agreement that they made one to another. It was a blood covenant, effectively. Okay? And this is what God has done. But did God do that with Abraham? Was Abraham walking with the Lord? No. God had a smoking furnace and a burning lamp passing between those pieces. It was a unilateral agreement. It was something that was done by God alone, a promise to Abraham. Now, if people believed the word of God, we wouldn't have covenantal theology today. We wouldn't have the notion that is, that is made right through so much of what they call Christianity, believing that God is finished with Israel. That God is not finished with Israel. The Bible makes that clear. This is a promise, an absolute promise to Abraham for the land. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. Isn't that true? They're not believing the word of God and what it's saying so plainly. 
God's work and his promises can't be thwarted by man's device. Isaiah 14, 27 says, For the Lord of hosts hath purposed, and who shall disannul it? And his hand is stretched out, and who shall turn it back? What about the coming of the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ? 300 prophecies in the Old Testament. 300 at least for the first coming. For the first coming of the Lord. Was there a plan afoot, do you think, to thwart that? Do you think that Satan would really wanted to have the Saviour come? How was the Saviour going to come? He had to come down through the royal line of David, didn't he? He had to come down through the, the, the Davidic line of kings. That was part of, of, of Jesus' first coming. All right? It was a condition there okay, that he had to come directly down through that line. That's what God had promised. He had to be part of the, the, the tribe of Judah and come down through King David. And Satan knew that. Satan did what he could, didn't he? He did what he could to, to try and rip that out from the Lord. He did everything he could through history to try and stop the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he worked through the lives of the kings too, trying to do something that would disannul that inheritance. Jeremiah. If you've got your Bibles there, please turn to Jeremiah. This is a really interesting portion of Scripture that I'd like you to, to consider. It's Jeremiah chapter 22. Jeremiah chapter 22. If you hit Isaiah or somewhere in the middle of the book, turn right. Eventually get to Jeremiah. The God had made sure that even through, through life and through the, the law that people lived according to a certain way and he had the, um, the ability also to disannul them, to remove their inheritance from them. He would, um, he would take their name out of the book of life. He would, he would cut them short to the third and the fourth generation. We've got an interesting situation that's happened here in Jeremiah chapter 22. I'll read from verse 24 to 30. This is the prophecy of Jeremiah who says this, As I live, saith the Lord, though Keniah, or Jeconiah, though Keniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet upon my right hand, yet will I pluck thee thence, and I will give thee into the hand of them that seek thy life, and into the hand of them whose face thou fearest, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. And I will cast thee out, and thy, and thy mother that bear thee into another country, where you were not born, and there you shall, die, shall you die. But to the land whereunto they desire to return, thither shall they not return. Is this man, Kaniah, a despised, broken idol? Is he a vessel wherein is no pleasure? Wherefore are they cast out, he and his seed, and are cast into a land where they know not? Where they know not? O earth, earth, earth! Hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days. For no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. God had pronounced a blood curse on the line of David from Keniah. A blood curse. And no man shall prosper sitting on his throne. What's going to happen here? How is this going to happen? I mean, isn't the Lord, isn't the Messiah to come down from the line of David? Isn't he supposed to come down from also the royal line of David? 
how is this going to happen now? I mean, how can this be right if they shouldn't prosper? This is a curse that God's pronounced here. Now you can see Satan in the background, just awesome. God can't deny himself, right? And he had to pronounce a curse on Kaniah. Awesome, and he's done it. He's done it. God can't go back on this now. This is now legit. God can't go back. He can't turn around. Satan would have been stoked, you know? How awesome. He's actually thwarted the plan of God. But that only lasted for 10 chapters. Because in chapter 33... You have a look down at chapter 33. Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 17. He says, For thus saith the Lord, David shall never want a man to sit upon the house, upon the throne of the house of Israel. Have a look at verse 20, the same chapter. Thus saith the Lord, If ye can break my covenant of the day and my covenant of the night, and that there should not not be day and night in their season, then may also my covenant be broken with David my servant, that he should not have a son to reign upon his throne. Could you imagine Satan's expression at this point? For at least ten chapters he was absolutely stoked that he thwarted the plan of God. And now all of a sudden he's sitting there thinking... Well, hang on, how's, you, you, you've, you've made a blood curse on, on that line. They can't prosper. And now you're saying that David's going to have someone sit on the throne. How? Oh, God's not bothered by that, is he? Did you notice that in the New Testament, you've got genealogies of the Lord Jesus Christ? Did you notice when you read Luke and you read Matthew, though Luke goes sort of backwards, he goes, he goes backwards from the Lord Jesus and Matthew goes down from, I think it's Abraham, he comes down from that point. Are they exactly the same? There's a slight difference, isn't there? I don't know if you've ever seen it or recognised it, but in the book of Luke, in the book of Matthew, Matthew takes the royal line, the rightful throne of the Lord Jesus Christ and he takes it from I think it's Abraham, and you go straight through David, straight through Solomon, straight down through Joseph, the legal father, right to the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so he, 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 he is the legal heir to the throne, but there's a blood curse on that line. How can he prosper? I think you look at Luke. Now Luke, if you flipped it the other way, because he goes from the Lord Jesus all the way back to Adam, so flip it the other way, just to make it in line with Matthew, so we're going the same direction, right? He comes down through Adam, goes straight through to Abraham, and goes all the way down, he goes to, to, to Judah, and then to, to David, and then he takes a left turn. He stops at David, and it seems like he goes across to Nathan, the brother, son of David, and then it looks like he takes a different genealogy and comes right down through Mary. The bloodline. It's interesting that it's Luke, Dr. Luke, you know. It's interesting that it's Dr. Luke. But it seems that he has taken it through the bloodline of David through Nathan. Now, that's not 100% clear in the New Testament. It seems to have been brought up through the, the Babylonian Talmud that the name is the father of 
Mary, that, that next name up, is actually the father of Mary. And he's gone through Nathan, through Nathan's line. That's the only reasonable explanation. And that is the only way that now we can have the Lord Jesus Christ come in his fullness properly. Legal bloodline of King David. Can what we do thwart the plan of God? A lit. God be true, but every man a liar. God is true in what he teaches and what he says. Regardless of what men try and do. Regardless of what we even want to believe. Oh, this one. The preservation of the heirs of salvation. I love this. God has promised to preserve the heirs of salvation. Those that are born again, God has clearly made his promise to preserve them. And this is, this is our hope. This is my hope. This is my joy that I look forward to. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, he says that, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Any other conditions? You can go on and continue reading. Paul is, you remember what Paul's like? Paul, Paul, Paul will put a, a proposition forward and then he'll bring forward the question that you're thinking in your own mind and he'll answer that. Does he give you any other conditions here in chapter 10 of the book of Romans? You know, read on through it when you have the time. Thou shalt be saved. How? If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus Christ... And shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him on from the dead, thou shalt be saved. I don't know. Is that, is that difficult? Is that complicated? There's 29 words there. There's 29 words there. And um, there's only three words that have got more than one syllable. Could God have made it simpler, do you think? He can, you know? First John, turn to First John. First John. God can make it simpler. God can still make it simpler. First John, so it's right at the back of the book. Chapter 5. First John chapter 5. Oh, it's the simplicity that is in Christ, you know? And that's what we rejoice in. We complicate things so much by putting all these other little conditions in there. And yet it's the simplicity that's in the Lord Jesus Christ that we look forward to. It's such a blessing. 1 John chapter 5, verse 12. He that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. 19 one-syllable words, and they completely give you the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 19 single words. I know you're all excited. I can see you jumping out of your seats. It's wonderful, isn't it? That is the gospel of the Lord. Can man's ideas, man's thoughts, man's perceptions change that? Can we change that? I can't change it. I can't change it. Let God be true, but every man a liar. First Peter 1, 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God. Through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Kept by the power of God. 
John 5, 24, Jesus' own words. He says this, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed, passed from death unto life. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24 says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you who will also do it. Why? That excites me no end. It excites me no end. Paul says in Timothy, he says, If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. The Lord can't deny himself. This is the truth of our Lord. J. Vernon McGee actually says, I praise God that his promises to me do not depend on my faithfulness. If it had depended on me, I would have been lost long ago. Thank God for his faithfulness. And I think every single one of us can, can just relate to that. It's his faithfulness. It's he that preserves us. And it's a joy and the hope that we have in our Lord and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Can what we believe alter that? Can what we believe alter that? Uh, let's, let's ask you a question. You're born again by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You were born again, saved by his blood. You believed in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. But, but, you're taught that that's something that's temporary. That whatever you've, whatever you've, Whatever you've gained from the Lord, now you need to maintain it yourself. Does it change whether you're actually saved or not? If you believe that you can lose your salvation, does that change whether you're saved or not? No, I can guarantee you're going to be going through life with a little bit of a longer face. Because I can't keep it. I couldn't gain it. I can't keep it. There's nothing I have done and can do to gain salvation. Otherwise, the Lord has died in vain. I mean, what's the point? Now in the most ruinous time of my life, I've, now it's all up to me now? This is not what the Lord has promised. This is not the good news. This is a misery. The good news of salvation is that you are saved. If thou shalt believe in thine heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, and confess with thy mouth, thou shalt be saved. It's his goodness. Hey, <laughs> Let God be true, and every man a liar. Let God be true. Preservation of his word, the last part in this section. It's, it's the word of God that Paul is dealing with here. Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Their unbelief in what? The unbelief in the word of God. Paul is addressing that particular attention in this, in this text. It's that which they believe not. And it is that which this sermon is imploring you to have the utmost faith and trust in. But God has promised, has God promised anything concerning its preservation that we can fully trust in? Has he? Well, just look at one passage in scripture. Just one. Psalms chapter 12. Psalm chapter 12. Some of you, this would be a well-known psalm. It's one of those fundamental questions that I've been searching for for a good 
almost a decade, trying to understand how we can make sense of all of this, how we can make sense that we have the Word of God and yet we're swamped with hundreds of Bible translations. And yet, my question was, can God preserve his word? Does he have a problem with language? Has he have a problem with any of that? Is he limited by language? When Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away, does, is he somehow limited in any way? And I, and I look, I, I basically thought, look, I've got the authorised version of the Bible. I believe it's by far the best translation. And I'm a little bit scared about changing a single word in there, just in case, you know, just in case for the English speaking people, it is the very word of God. I thought, mate, I'm going to stay naive. With this respect, I'm staying naive. Why? Because in the beginning of the Bible, he talks about anybody that removes or adds to the word of God. He's going to remove their place. And in the middle of the Bible, he says, anybody that takes away from the word of God will be found a liar. And at the end of the Bible, he says, if anybody removes from the prophecy of this book, I shall remove his name from the word of God. How do I know which word I can take out and which word I can leave in? I can't work it out. I mean, do do I have that, that, that mental ability to be able to work that out? No, no, no. Mate, you guys want to do what you like with it. I'm not touching it. I'm not touching it. And that was before I came to this verse. That was before. I just, I just thought, look, it's the best translation. I'm going to leave it at that. I'm just going to just leave it alone. I'll be safer that way, you know, if I just trust every word. And then, then I come to this. Did God promise? Chapter 12, Psalm 12, verse 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth purified seven times thou shalt keep them O Lord thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever whose job is it to preserve his word whose is it mine who who, who put his name on it who it's the Lord the Lord has done it and we think, don't think it's a really big deal that the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is also known as the Word. Well, we don't think that, that well, it's just, it's just a, you know, they just say that, you know. They just say that, you know. There are three that bear record, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. The second person of the Trinity is the Lord Jesus Christ, known as the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Not this pagan Logos idea. Not that. The word of God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And in Revelation 19, he had a name written that no man knew, but he himself and his name is called the word of God. How is it? How is it that somehow language, the English language particularly throws God? I don't know how he works that out. How does God preserve his word? How has he preserved me? I don't know. I don't know how he's done it. But I'm not going to question it. I'm not going to question it. I can't. Lest I be found a liar. Hey, let God be true, but every man a liar. How wonderful to have that. The last part of this text that we've been looking at at Romans chapter 3 is the last part of this sermon. And that is to repent of unbelief. 
Romans chapter 3. You turn yourself back there, please. We're going to be going to one more scripture after this. Verse 3, it says, God forbid, yea, let, oh God, verse 4, sorry, God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. What an interesting quote from the Old Testament. What an interesting quote. How interesting it is as well that this is addressed to Jewish believers. See, to Jewish believers, this, this portion that he's just quoted, they wouldn't be ignorant of. What he's quoted here comes from the repentant psalm of David, King David, in Psalm 51. And I will get you to turn there, please. Psalm 51. Just a brief touch on the story. King David had sinned. He'd gone onto the roof of his his home and he'd seen witness Bathsheba bathing and he took her to himself and she ended up writing to him saying that now she's with child. King David knew that she was the wife of Uriah the Hittite and that didn't seem to matter to him at that time. Now that she's with child, he's perplexed with what to do and he calls Uriah the Hittite from the front lines and he calls him home to spend some time with his wife and he wouldn't spend the time with his wife. He said, how indeed can I spend time with my, to come into my wife when, when all, my, all my fellow soldiers are out there fighting on the front lines, sleeping on the ground? I can't do that. So David, well, the next day got him to a feast and got him a little bit drunk and hoped that he would still go out there, but he slept at the door. King David now is a little bit perplexed with what to do. He writes a letter and puts it into the hand of Uriah the Hittite for Uriah to take that to Joab. And the letter basically stated to put him in the front lines of the hottest battle that he would be killed. What a way to kill someone. Isn't it amazing? All authority to the king. All authority to the king. All authority to him. He can do whatever he likes. He has the authority to do that. He put that letter. And this is what blows me away. Uriah the Hittite had the letter in his hand. He was bringing his own death warrant to Joab. Joab read it, put him in the front line, and sure enough, he fell. A report came back that he died. David said, don't worry about it. These things happen, basically. Don't concern yourself with it until Nathan came to him. What we have here is the broken heart of David. His broken heart. Rather than believing God at his words, he took upon himself the authority to do what he thought was right, his opinion, what he wanted to do. And here we have him broken before God. Let's read it. Psalm 51. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he hath gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. 
that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness and burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. God will be justified in his sayings. God will be justified in the things that he has decreed. He has given us the very word of God, the hope of glory, the joy of our salvation, something that we can have a firm foundation in, something that we can hold to, In every way, something that is true, something that is sure. This is our solid rock. What we believe has consequences. Consequences that cannot be altered by our personal preferences. The last part of this fourth fourth verse would expect us to repent, to change our hearts in a way that changes our efforts. Recognise that you have believed things that were wrong, And some of you still believe things that are wrong. Some of you have sat under the gospel, but your hearts have been hardened. This this, this breaks my heart more than anything. There's some that are here that have sat under the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And your hearts have been hardened, not saved, not born again. I, I can't assume that that's not the case. There's been plenty of research done in days gone by. I remember one of George Barner's ones where he interviewed so many people within churches, a number of different churches, and he asked them the question, are you born again? 80% of them didn't even know what born again was. They didn't even understand what it was. And he surmised from that that 80% of people that sit in the modern churches today aren't saved. 80%. Wow. We're, 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 we're fundamental Baptists here. We're, we're, we teach the word of God. We preach the truth of the scriptures. Yeah. So flip that figure. Flip that figure. Say it's 20% here. That means sitting in these chairs here, there's anywhere between 10 to 15 people that are not saved. Anywhere right now here in this church, right now, 10 to 15 people that if you died today, you will find yourself in hell. This is shocking to me. And it breaks my heart thinking about it. Believe the gospel. 
believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That his righteousness can be transferred to you. That a transaction can occur here that is kept by him and preserved forever. Before you leave today, please, I implore you, please, come to know the Lord. Believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, be renewed, be changed and be forever joyful in the work that he's done on the cross for us. In conclusion, each and every day you and I make decisions based on what we believe to be true. How confidently could we live our life if what we believed had a foundation that was sure? Imagine a question arise that we could search and answer, knowing with perfect assurance that the answer is true. Imagine that. Imagine being able to do that. We Google things now, don't we? Think the answers there are true? Some of them are hit and miss, some of them based on majority opinion. Imagine, imagine, imagine having a foundation that is absolutely sure. Imagine knowing it. Imagine when you pray, the answers come. And you pray the answers come because they come directly out of the word of God. I, I came from a charismatic background and, and people always thought that God spoke to you audibly and yet their Bibles were never opened. They never read them. Would never clue what God said. But you find that when you read scripture and you read it believing it, when you pray, the answers come directly out of the word of God. That's such a blessing. But it means that we have to be willing to abandon what we thought we knew was true. We have to be willing to say, am I honest with myself? Am I reading the word of God with preconceived ideas? Am I honest? Lord, take away that wretched idea within my heart and let me read it afresh. Let me read it as if God has something to say and that it's clear. But you would ask, how can you know that the Bible is true? The answer was given by a tinker 400 years ago because it was written by him that cannot lie. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, dear Lord, for the wonderful joy of the word of God, the hope that we have, the blessing that we have. And we pray, dear Lord, that we would read that word, dear Father, and that your word will be written on our hearts, that we can live this life with joy, sharing the gospel with all the hope of glory that we have and looking at a broken world around us with pity within our hearts and eyes. I pray, dear Father, for those that are amongst us here that are not born again, that are not saved by your grace and blood. We know that it's not the limit of you, dear Father, but it's within their own hearts, dear Lord. I pray, dear Father, that they would seek repentance and seek your face with all the earnestness that they can, that you may be indeed found. We praise you for this service. We praise you for this church. We praise you for the people that are here, and I pray that we can grow with ever-increasing love and faithfulness in the truth of the Scriptures. We thank you again in Jesus' glorious, most holy and precious name. Amen.